0: Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with RFF senior fellow Dick Morgenstern. Along with several co-authors, Dick has recently released an RFF working paper on China's new emissions trading program. We'll talk about that trading program today, including what its goals are, how it's designed, along with some of its strengths and weaknesses. We'll also talk about how this policy fits into the framework of international negotiations on climate change. And one quick note, this episode was recorded well before the extent of the coronavirus pandemic had become clear. Stay with us. Okay, Dick Morgenstern from Resources for the Future, Uh, uh, my colleague, it's great to have you here on the podcast. Uh, Thanks for joining us today thank you. So Dick, we always like to get a general sense of how people got into the world of energy and environmental policy uh, when we talk to them on the podcast. So uh, so what's your story? How did you get into this field?
1: Oh, gee, let's think. Well, I guess you can probably date it to when I was back in, uh, in grade school. I used to go fishing at five o'clock in the morning with a close friend of mine, and I really enjoyed being out in the water and all the all the elements. Um, I went to college in Oberlin, Ohio, mm-hmm. which is right near Cleveland, of course, and Cleveland was the site of the major fires on the Cuyahoga River uh, around 1970, and so that certainly raised my awareness. But I guess probably the biggest influence was when I first came to Washington, which was in the mid-'70s, and I went to work as an analyst at the Congressional Budget Office. It was a very exciting time for uh, energy and environmental issues to come into the national spotlight, and I really got engaged in them, and I realized that economics uh, could make a, a huge contribution, so I kind of jumped in, and I've held various positions, mostly in Washington, uh, since that time, and, and I really enjoy uh, working on environmental and energy issues from an economic perspective.
0: Right. For sure, and I'm curious, where, where did you grow up that you would go fishing so often?
1: Well, I grew up on Long Island, actually, but the oh. place where we used to go fishing, my friend's father would t- take us down to Sheep's Head Bay in Brooklyn, yeah, and we would go out in a small boat. Uh, he had an outboard motor, and we put it on a back, and we'd go out pretty far out where uh, there weren't very many small boats actually, but it was a really uh, exciting thing. Yeah, oh,
0: very cool. So I'll have to ask you more stories about fishing in Brooklyn
1: some other time,
0: um, but uh, but for now, we're going to focus in on a recent paper that you've co-authored with a number of colleagues, and the name of the paper, so people can look it up, we'll have a link to it, of course, uh, on in the show notes, but if you're listening now and want to find it, the name of the paper is China's unconventional nationwide CO2 emissions trading system, the wide-ranging impacts of an implicit output subsidy. So we're going to break that down in over the next 25 minutes or so and talk about what that what that means um but as a preface to my first question I, i was sort of thinking about this as i was reading the paper myself and You know, many people know that China has been developing a nationwide emissions trading program for a number of years, and many of them, including myself, have referred to it at times as a cap-and-trade program. Uh, But reading this paper, I realized that's not quite right. Uh, The government has instead opted to use a tool called a tradable performance standard, which is different from a cap-and-trade program in a number of ways, and it has different implications. And those are uh, really the topics that we'll focus on today. So to start off, I think it would be useful if you could explain to us the difference between a cap and trade system and a tradable performance standard approach.
1: Happy to do so. Let me just start out with a shout out to my co-authors here. Yeah. Uh, Larry Goulder, who's a professor at Stanford. Uh, Shanlin Long, who is a graduate student at Stanford. J.E. Lu, who uh, has been working at RFF and is now a graduate student at Yale. They were all co-authors and the four of us kind of worked fairly intensively to put this quite detailed paper together. Great, But let me turn to your question. What's the difference between a cap-and-trade and and a tradable performance standard? A cap-and-trade is a fixed limit on the emissions, on the tons of emissions that can be uh, emitted by covered facilities. And covered facilities, in this case, apply to the electric sector initially which is what the Chinese are regulating at the outset. Cap-and-trade differs from a tradable performance standard, which does not have a fixed limit on the tons of emissions. Instead, it fixes the ratio of emissions to output. And what the authorities do is they establish a policy where the new ratio is below the existing ratio or the expected or predicted ratio. And of course, this is on an average basis. So what that means is the new ratio, which is called the benchmark, uh, has some facilities that are operating below it and some that are operating above it. And the difference between the facilities below the benchmark and above the benchmark creates the potential for trading among them. There are, of course, many pros and cons of this standard, and I imagine you will get into those as we go along.
0: Yeah, we will. you know one a couple of terms that people sometimes use to describe the difference between these two approaches that I think applies here, and I'll ask you whether they actually do. but uh, a cap and trade programs are often or sometimes referred to as mass based programs. so like there's a certain mass, a quantity of c o two that can be emitted under the program, and that is a fixed number, whereas a tradable performance standard is more of uh, what's called a rate based program where. Each firm or power plant, or however you want to think about it, has a particular CO2 emissions rate that they're allowed to produce for every you know, megawatt hour of electricity they produce. Is that a useful way to think of it as mass-based? Well, that's exactly
1: right. A mass-based really means that you're fixing the number of tons. The mass of tons that come out of, in this case, power plants are restricted, plain and simple. A rate-based system, which is a correct term to use, really relates to this ratio. And it's really, you're you're regulating the ratio of the mass to output levels. And as I say, you can bring the ratio down by either reducing the numerator, the mass, or by increasing the denominator, which is the output level of the facility.
0: Right. Got it. Okay, so let's... Um... Let me ask you one more background question before we kind of dig into the policy itself. Uh, And the background question is kind of a high level one, which is, uh, has the Chinese government articulated a specific emissions reduction goal for the power sector that this program is designed to meet. So the program only applies to the power sector if I'm if, if, if I'm remembering things correctly. So is there like an end goal that this thing is, is, is supposed to achieve in a certain number of years or is that uh, not defined at this point?
1: Well, it is and it isn't, okay? The Chinese <laughs> have defined an overall goal for their economy which would extend beyond the electric sector. And that goal is to reduce their emissions intensity, which is to say the ratio of Emissions to output by 60 to 65 percent below the 2005 levels by the time they get to 2030. Mm-hmm. Now they're already well along in meeting that goal, but that doesn't precisely address the question that you asked, which is, how does is there a goal for the electric sector per se? I'm not aware of a specific goal for that sector. However, the Chinese, when they announced this program. Uh, back several years ago, they said it was going to cover seven sectors, which the biggest and first one, of course, would be the electric sector, which is what they're now in the process of rolling out. But they also identified major industrial sectors, for example, iron and steel, petroleum refining, cement, and several others that would be included in their emission trading system. And that, those, um, that's going to be rolled out in the future although there's very little detail that I'm aware of on the design uh, of those systems.
0: Great. Got it. So we so we know this particular policy plays into that larger goal, but we at least, you know, at this point are not sure about what the specific power sector target is.
1: That's correct. Okay. Um,
0: that's really useful to know at the outset. Um, so let's dive in a little bit to talking about the tradable performance standard and some of its benefits and drawbacks relative to like a cap and trade approach or or some other policy approach that one might take to reduce emissions. The paper points out that a tradable performance standard encourages generators to produce more electricity than they otherwise might. And you've already touched on this a little bit, but can you expand a little bit and maybe like give us an, an example of a hypothetical power plant and how Um, it might be incentivized to produce more electricity under a tradable performance standard than it might under a cap-and-trade or a carbon tax or something like that.
1: Sure. So with cap-and-trade, the only thing a firm can do is reduce its emissions, as I mentioned. With the tradable performance standards, they have that second option, which is to increase output. In thinking about the incentives uh, on the electric power producers, it's useful to recall that the benchmark that was set is an average. And as in any average, some people are below average and some people are above average. Below average in this case means more efficient and above average means less efficient. So the incentives that this uh, system creates are that those who are more efficient, that is below the average, have an incentive to expand their output because they know that they will earn emission allowances At the level of the benchmark, even though their actual uh, emissions to output ratio is below the benchmark. That will create a surplus for them in emission allowances, and they can turn around and sell that surplus to the producers who are above the benchmark, above the average. That forms, as I mentioned, the basis of trading. However, it also creates a situation where their output of the entire system of producers is higher than it was before. So essentially, the the mechanism by which the tradable performance standard works is it incentivizes the producers who are highly efficient to produce more than they might have uh, and sell the surplus allowances that they earn to the uh, less efficient producers who are above the benchmark. In the course of doing this, the as I say, the total output increases. And with total output increased in the system there is less pressure on electricity prices and that turns out to be an important point because it will have some effect on the extent of leakage that occurs in the system right so
0: so a given firm might for whatever you know technical reason that uh, we don't need to go into the company or the firm or the power generator or whatever term we're thinking about it could um increase its overall production, which could actually lower its rate of emissions, even if its total level of emissions increases, Correct. Uh, is that right? And another question that comes to mind is, you know, the the title mentions uh, this phrase implicit output subsidy. Can you um, help us understand how a tradable performance standard could be seen as an implicit output subsidy?
1: So you are correct that there is an output subsidy in, involved in this system, and we call it an implicit output subsidy. And the way it works is, as I mentioned, for those units who's, who are more efficient than the benchmark, they have an incentive to produce more in order to gain more emission allowances, and they won't need them all because their efficiency is below that benchmark. So they are incentivized to produce, uh, um, period. Got it. Okay.
0: Um, you also talk in the paper with your colleagues, of course, about the potential advantages of using a tradable performance standard, where different uh, firms have different targets in terms of their emissions output per unit of of electricity. Um, you've talked about how, or in the paper, you talk about how this. Uh, could reduce economic efficiency, so the sort of overall economic efficiency of the program. And as we've talked just now, it could lead to higher emissions than otherwise might occur. But you also discussed some potential benefits of this type of policy design. What, what are the benefits that you see to, to using this approach?
1: Sure. Uh, first of all, we've done an overall calculation as to the benefits of the program quite apart from the mechanics, Mm -hmm. but the overall benefits associated with the emission reductions. And those benefits, when you value the tons reduced by using the social cost of carbon, we find that the benefits of the reductions are roughly three times the cost of operating the system. So Mm -hmm. the Chinese are clearly operating in a favorable territory here. As for the specific design elements, the use of a tradable performance standard, it means that the goal will vary with the state of the business cycle. So if the economy is booming and there's a big demand for electricity, then the firms will have a higher, a higher target, if you will. OK, and if the economy is not booming, then the target will come down as opposed to cap and trade where the target is set in advance and it doesn't vary with the state of the business cycle. But because of that ratio, you're getting a variable target, which presumably reflects the difficulty of meeting the standard and is, is a favorable thing. A second uh, favorable aspect uh, of the system is that because it's gonna result in fewer electricity price increases or pressures for electricity price increases that would normally occur, the, uh, the amount of emissions leakage that's likely to result is lower. So, emissions leakage is a concern in any system because you're, unless it's a truly global system, if only some nations or some uh, entities are adopting it, then their cost of production will rise and others will not. But the tradable performance standard tends to mute the price increases. And by muting price increases, it will reduce leakage. So there's a number of different things going on here. As I say, the benefits do exceed the cost by a substantial amount. It is quite responsive to the business cycle. It does reduce leakage, but it is less efficient. And you could think of it, if you plotted a course and you were going to go from, say, New York to California by car, and if getting to California was the goal and you value that enormously, then there are many different routes you could take. And what the Chinese are doing is they're not taking the most efficient or the least cost route to get there. But still in all, the benefits of getting there still outweigh the costs. So that's the way to think about how these pieces fit together.
0: Got it. And also maybe, you know, if you're not taking the interstate from New York to California, you can take the back roads and they're, even though it's not the most efficient way, there are probably some benefits to doing that as well, right? Like maybe Correct. And the benefits, and,
1: well, the better restaurants, sure. And that corresponds, if you will, to less leakage perhaps. Yeah. Okay. Uh, or more adaptability to business cycles.
0: Got it. And one other just quick technical question on the benefits and costs. You mentioned that you use the social cost of carbon in the paper. Um, is that Are you using the sort of uh, U.S. government 2015 or 2016 correct. social cost of carbon. That's so that's correct. like $42 a ton.
1: Well, adjusted for inflation, it's about $44, but that's correct.
0: Okay, great. I, I'm sure some of our listeners want want to know what is the SCC that you're using. Um, great. So that's all super useful. Um, I had a couple of questions that popped into my mind as I was reading the paper about the international climate negotiations implication of using a tradable performance standard rather than some other kind of hard cap. And this is relevant not just to this program, but to the uh, sort of goal that we talked about uh, for the Chinese economy overall as being an emissions intensity goal rather than a hard cap. And um, so the question is, you know, because they're not using a hard cap on emissions, which you know, some other countries are doing in the context of uh, international climate negotiations, does that create challenges with comparing the uh, reductions achieved in China with the reductions achieved in, say, Europe or, or, or any other country? And do you think that difference in design uh, could create challenges going forward in international negotiations when countries are trying to compare their level of effort against one another?
1: Well, I think there is some additional complexity here. But at the end of the day, there are emission reductions expected to take place under this system, and one can measure them. So it should be possible to compare the emission reductions that occur in this system, in the Chinese system, to those reductions that are occurring elsewhere. It's not quite as transparent and takes a little more, uh, some complexity to to doing the calculations, but it certainly is plausible and feasible to do those calculations. And will this create challenges down the road in international negotiations? Well, there are many challenges in international <laughs> negotiations, as you well know. I suspect that this is probably one of the more modest challenges uh, that needs to be addressed.
0: Okay, well, that's uh, that's good to hear. And it actually came to mind as I was asking that question. I think there was a paper a few years ago that uh, Joe Aldi and Billy Pizer put out about comparing Sort of levels of ambition across these different types of policy design. So it's very much an in the weeds, um, sort of technical thing to figure out. But but as you as you say, you know it's not the most daunting hurdle that uh, that we could see ahead. Correct. So one other question about this particular type of policy choice of using the tradable performance standard is, you know, when when we think about climate policies that are happening around the world, one of the most popular tools that different countries and states in the United States have used over the last five or 10 years have been cap and trade programs, right? These sort of hard cap programs that that have trading elements within them. Um, they've been pretty popular. They've been growing in recent years. Do you think this model of a tradable performance standard uh, has the potential to provide a, a new model for other nations that might be looking for ways to, uh, to address emissions with a little bit more flexibility, particularly if we're thinking about developing countries.
1: Well, I think uh, that's where the opportunities probably do lie. China uh, and other developing countries for some time have been going to the negotiations and uh, discussing their, their importance of economic growth uh, for their future. And they are afraid, if you will, or they appear afraid, to me, to uh, lock into some fixed cap that they fear might uh, limit their economic growth. So by defining their goals as this ratio, their national goals as a ratio, uh, they have allowed themselves the opportunities to grow economically, uh, while at the same time they're becoming more efficient. Uh, The design of this uh, electricity-focused trading system, which they are now embarking on, is a way to implement that broad scale goal of an emissions intensity target and to apply it down in the weeds, if you will, to individual facilities uh, and to see how it will work. Um, I have heard talk in international circles that some other countries have started to think about this. I don't know how seriously, and I think many countries are waiting to see how the Chinese system actually works out yeah
0: that makes sense and I guess as I'm you know as you're as you're answering that question I'm thinking some people might be listening and thinking about this question and thinking, well, you know the climate doesn't care about the rate of our emissions relative to our output the climate cares about the number of tons uh, that are that are put into the atmosphere and so you know is this potentially a concerning uh development that? Uh, major emitters like China and potentially other countries, if they were to choose to adopt this approach, um, you know, might be moving away from a hard cap uh, to this rate question. Is that something that um, should give us pause or is it, um, or am I thinking about it in, in the- No,
1: in you're the raising a, a very good point. Uh, I guess my, my thought is that what the environment really cares about is that total emissions are reduced. And there are different ways and different incentive structures that one can set up to reduce total emissions. A cap-and-trade is a very clear, transparent way of limiting emissions. But a tradable performance standard of this sort has the potential to reduce emissions as well. It doesn't sound quite as uh, limiting on emissions and on the economy as cap-and-trade, to be sure. But if it has the intended effect, which is to make emissions more expensive and less attractive for emitters, for firms, then it's a good thing. So I guess my answer is that there's a lot of potential here. How it works out in practice uh, remains to be seen. And I think uh, we're all optimistic, but probably cautiously optimistic.
0: Right. And to be clear, you know, one could certainly achieve deep decarbonization under a tradable permit standard, but that, you know, the rate that firms would be uh tasked with achieving would just be a very low rate or potentially a, a rate of zero uh zero emissions per unit of electricity generation or whatever other output you wanted to measure
1: well it really depends on how dramatic the 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 targets are set the mm-hmm. chinese have set this target of a, a 60 or 65 reduction reduction in the in their emissions per unit of output okay let's be clear what we're saying set that re- reduction over a 25-year period some people might have said they should have had a higher reduction target, and that's certainly plausible. Uh, but but this is what they've chosen. This is what they've offered up at the Paris uh, and other international uh, agreements. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and, and just so people are clear, sorry, and when you say output, just so everybody knows what we're talking about it, you're talking about uh, economic output like GDP or something like that. Correct.
1: I'm talking about uh, economic output. And in the case of this particular trading system that's focused on electric utilities, they're talking about the output of electricity. But as they move to apply this to the other sectors that I mentioned, they're going to face issues about what is the contribution of the steel sector and what is the contribution of the chemical sector, et cetera. And uh, it's all gonna boil down, I expect, to economic output.
0: Yeah. Well, Dick, uh, this has been so interesting. Uh, there are so many more questions that I uh, would love to ask you um, about you know, climate policy in China more broadly, when we saw each other a few weeks ago, I did <laughs> ask you a bunch of questions um, and I'm sure I'll do so the next time I see you. Uh, but but now I think we're going to close it out and I'm going to ask you the same question that we ask all of our guests, which is uh, what have you read or heard or watched lately related to the environment or energy that you think is really interesting and that you'd recommend to our listeners? And I'm just going to start with a very brief and somewhat repetitive recommendation uh, during our podcast podcast. A few months ago with Sarah Ladislaw from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Sarah recommended uh, the book The Wizard and the Prophet uh, by Charles Mann, and uh, I picked up that book on her recommendation, and I'm about three quarters of the way through it, and it's just fantastic. Um, it's, it's not only a really interesting way of thinking about the world and you know technological and sociological challenges uh it's also got all sorts of really fascinating historical nuggets kind of sprinkled throughout um about you know the discovery of the greenhouse effect uh or the history of coal and all sorts of other you know fascinating energy and environmental topics so if you haven't read the wizard and the prophet yet uh i I would really recommend it so how about you dick what's on the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack
1: i have not read uh that book but you know, I've been getting increasingly interested in glaciers, mm. and I had the opportunity uh, to do some glacier hiking in recent years. Most recently I was down in Patagonia, where it's absolutely gorgeous. But I've been following a series that the National Geographic has put out where they have been reporting up in Alaska that glaciers are melting uh, about 100 times faster than previously thought. Mm. And that's, that's pretty frightening. Um, a friend of mine is actually doing some work measuring the release of methane from the permafrost. And some of the numbers that uh, he's come up with are also uh, quite frightening. So I guess I would uh, refer your listeners to some of the National Geographic uh, uh, papers. I guess last summer was when they first started appearing, then I noticed them. And I think that they're they're really fascinating.
0: Great. Well, we'll make sure to, to find some of those and put links to them on uh, the, the web page and on the show notes so people can look them up. And, uh, and with that, we'll close it out and say once again, uh, thank you, Dick, for joining us on Resources Radio, talking to us about the uh, Chinese um, emissions trading system and, uh, and your history of fishing and glaciers and all the other stuff we've talked about.
1: Great. Well, thank you very much, Daniel.
0: You've been listening to Resources Radio. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. Learn more about us at rff.org. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the participants. They do not necessarily represent the views of Resources for the Future, which does not take institutional positions on public policies. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.